0: Welcome to the AKC podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London, following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. This semester's lecture series, entitled Power to the People, Identity, Difference and Inequality, has been coordinated by Dr Kate Kirkpatrick. Handouts, presentation slides, and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area.
1: Imagine you are a journalist interviewing a scientist in her lab and also taking a few pictures of her to be published along with the interview. When taking the pictures, you will have to take many decisions. What perspective will you choose? Are you going to take a frontal picture? a profile, a half profile, at eye level, from above, from below. You will also decide about the frame and focus. Will you take the photograph from a distance, showing context, perhaps even the scientist being at work in her lab, if you interviewed her there, emphasizing the practical side of her work? Or are you going to ask the scientists to stand in front of a bookshelf, emphasizing their theoretical work? Are you going to show them with a recently published book? Or might you even ask them to move over to the whiteboard in the lab with still a few formulas on it, showing them as teachers? Or will you instead choose to put them into a neutral frame, showing what you found to be distinctive traits of their personality reflected in their face? A penetrating gaze, a smile reflecting the joy of their work. And these decisions are just the beginning. We haven't even talked about lenses, light, and tone. Will you? choose to emphasize the concentration and intense reflection characterizing scientific work, or would you like to capture something of the imaginative, experimental, almost playful nature of the scientific endeavor? Will you decide to emphasize the cold and sharp precision of scientific work, or rather its magic and wonder? Clearly, we cannot take any picture without such numerous decisions. And we are still speaking only of what counts as original setting on my mobile phone. We are leaving aside all the possibilities of digitally transforming a picture through special effects and other means. What we need to include into our considerations, however, as you certainly felt already when looking at these pictures just now, is how the scientists themselves meet the photographer and take part in shaping the picture. Open hair or not, smiling or not. And if the setting were not the lab, think of the endless possibilities for shaping the picture through the ways the scientists could dress for their pictures and pose for them. In other words, contrary to what my mobile phone suggests, the journalist cannot provide an original. They could only do that, they could only give their readers the original of their interview partners if they literally took their readers to meet the scientists in the lab. That is, if they presented scientists and readers to each other. Everything else, the pictures and words that a journalist uses to tell her readers about the scientists are not presentations. They are necessarily, inevitably, always representations. And all representations involve, we might say, a particular camera, lens, frame, focus, aperture, shutter speed, white balance, and so on. Or in other words, representations are never neutral. In order to represent something, whether through images, sounds, words, practices, we will always have to adopt a particular lens, for instance, a particular language, a particular set of terms, concepts, and methods. We will also have to choose a specific position and perspective. These will be shaped by what we want to know or what we think others should know. They will be shaped by our previous knowledge and experience and by the resulting questions, interests, desires, hopes and anxieties with which we approach the task of representation. We will show certain aspects very well and others less clearly or not at all. We will also have to choose a certain frame, that is, we will contextualize in certain ways, and obviously we will have to focus somewhere. And we will take decisions as to the tone and mood of our representations, painting through our words and images, brighter or darker pictures, using higher or lower contrasts, bolder, muted colours, simple or complex compositions, hinting towards stillness of movement, stability of fragility, and so on. This also means that we always come from a certain moment in time and from a certain place, and that when we seek to represent someone or something, we capture them at a certain moment and in a certain place. Our representations are deeply interwoven with the history that everyone brings to the moment of representation. So just like good photographers, we need to come to know our tools very well. A good photographer knows his cameras and lenses, their strengths and weaknesses, and the history of how they have been used. And they can give an account of them. And similarly, we need to know our other tools, the languages, the terms, concepts and methods that we use when representing the world, the perspectives and positions that we bring to our work of representation, and their history, their promises and problems. And we need to be able to give a critical account of all of this. Now. This may all be very self-evident when we speak about representing the world around us, but when we speak about ourselves, when we say I, when we talk about our identities, are we not giving them directly to ourselves and others as something original rather than representing them? Well, this would only be the case if identities could be given without thinking about them, without thinking about our feelings about them, if they could be given without language, without words, images, or sounds. But this is not the case. Even identities are bound up with processes of representation. They do not exist outside our ways to speak about ourselves, to fashion ourselves, to move, to dress, to communicate and today we are communicating probably more self-consciously and intensely than ever before. Stuart Hall who came from Jamaica to Britain in 1951 to study in Oxford and became in the 1960s, along with Richard Hoggart, one of the founders of British Cultural Studies, leading for many years the famous Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies in Birmingham, Stuart Hall has spoken and written in particularly clear and incisive ways about identities as open-ended work of representation in progress. Always a production, as he says, and always constituted within presentation, not without it. And I quote um, the first quote on the handout. Identity is not as transparent or as unproblematic as we think. Perhaps instead of thinking of identity as an already accomplished fact, which cultural practices then represent, we should think instead of identity as a production which is never complete, always in process, and always constituted within, not outside representation. End of quote. Identities, then, are not a thing fixed in time and space, but rather constantly changing as we speak of them, write of them, depict them, narrate them, and perform them, in short, as we represent ourselves in various different situations in various different ways. And if identities are constantly in the making, if identifications as processes change and get transformed, then identities and their representations also have a history and are shaped by history. This is just, again, the quote. It is this aspect that, for Stuart Hall and many others, raises urgent questions. How does a history of uprooting and dispersal of violence and domination, of resistance, and the creative reconstitution of communities affect identities and identifications and their representations? In short, how does the experience of diaspora shape identities? communities, and the ways in which they are represented and represent themselves? These are huge questions, of course, and here I will focus only on some very specific aspects having to do with religion and the concept of diversity and inclusion. The first part is about diaspora, the second part is about religion, starting with diaspora. First, let us look more closely at some of the meanings of diaspora. The word itself is derived from the Greek verb diasperin, which means to scatter and disperse. For instance, the seeds of a fruit. The term was used for the first time in the 5th century before the common era by the Greek historian Thucydides in his history of the Peloponnesian War to describe the uprooting and dispersal of the inhabitants of the city of Erchina on the island of the same name. Two centuries later, around 250 before the common era, the Greek word appears for the first time in Jewish contexts diaspora. It is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, created by Jews in Alexandria in Egypt. The term is used in the context of a curse. If the people of Israel do not observe their covenant with God, they will be dispersed into foreign lands where they will worship idols. Here, diaspora is clearly described in very negative terms. It is a curse, and it is associated with abandoning God and with idolatry, with worshipping gods of wood and stone. However, we encounter here already also the great ambivalence of diaspora that will characterize the diaspora experience, not just for Jews, but for many others as well. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, is itself the result of Jews living in the diaspora, outside the land of Israel, in the Greek-speaking world of the Hellenistic empires of the Middle East and North Africa. And the Septuagint clearly shows that for Jews the diaspora is not necessarily a place of idol worship. It is a place of great Jewish religious and cultural creativity where philosophy and science is flourished and where an excellent translation of the Hebrew Bible is produced. This Jewish diaspora experience in the Hellenistic world is about both loss, for instance, loss of the knowledge of the Hebrew language, which necessitates a translation into Greek, and also creativity. 300 years later, however, in the year 70 of the common era, the situation changes dramatically. After an unsuccessful Jewish revolt to gain greater independence from the Roman Empire, the Second Temple Was destroyed. Jews were expelled temporarily from Jerusalem and Judea, and although they are allowed to return after a while, self-government and the temple were never restored. From this time onwards, Jews consider the diaspora away from Jerusalem and the ancestral land as exile, or in Hebrew, galut or gula. In the last century, In the 20th century, the term diaspora has become widespread. It is used by and for many community networks. You may find publications speaking of an Armenian diaspora, Greek diaspora, Polish diaspora, an Indian diaspora, an African diaspora. Stuart Hall speaks of the African Caribbean diaspora. Others write about a Lebanese diaspora, a Palestinian diaspora, an Iranian diaspora. And in recent years, some speak also of an Israeli diaspora. Historians, sociologists, and anthropologists have written about the concept of diaspora, its meanings, and its relationship to other concepts, such as transnationalism and internationalism. Among these scholars, and also among intellectuals, artists, writers, and many others who use the term, there's strong agreement that not all migrations and transnational networks can be described as forming a diaspora. Two aspects are essential for the emergence of a diaspora. First, the experience of forced, uprooting, and often violent dispersal of destruction and loss. This is what Jews experienced when the temple was destroyed, and again when they were expelled in 1492 from Spain, called in Hebrew Sfarad, creating a Sephardic diaspora within the larger Jewish diaspora that extended from North Africa and the Ottoman Empire to Amsterdam and London and to the Americas. This is violent, uprooting, and dispersal, what Africans suffered in the centuries of brutal uprooting and dispersal through slavery. This is what Indians experienced when they were brought to the Caribbean as indentured laborers. And this is what Armenians endured when they suffered genocide and expulsion during the First World War. The second aspect that is seen as critical for the formation of diasporas is the reconstitution of communal connections after the experience of violent dispersal. The inhabitants of Achena, for instance, of whom the ancient Greek historian speaks, did not reconnect after their dispersal. They vanished into the new societies of which they became part after resettling elsewhere in Greece. This is why you have never heard of an Achenian diaspora. Jews, and Sephardic Jews, Africans, Indians, Armenians, Iranians, Palestinians, and many others did, by contrast, with enormous energy and creativity, reconstitute communal ties across the lands of their dispersal. Three dimensions of forging a diaspora community and living with diaspora identities, individually and communally, have been highlighted by Stuart Hall. The first dimension, consists in the ongoing shared connection to the homeland, a longing for the lost origin, shared memories, shared times and rituals of mourning, loss and destruction, and shared attempts to recover what has been lost. But is it possible to recover origins? Or, as Stuart Hall put the question based on his reading of Franz Fanon, is it only a matter, I quote, of unearthing that which the colonial experience buried and overled, bringing to light the hidden continuities it suppressed? Or is it a quite different practice? Not the rediscovery, but the production of identity. Not an identity grounded in the archeology, span but in the retelling of the past." End of quote. Fanon and Hall raise these questions because memory and the longing to reconnect to lost origins always come after the violent rupture that stands at the beginnings of diaspora. I quote again, histories have their real material and symbolic effects, Hall writes. The past continues to speak to us, but it is no longer it no longer addresses us as a simple factual past, a given, since our relation to it is always already after the break. End of quote. After the break, as Hall says, the attempt to connect to the past is affected by constant and profound changes and transformations that shape both the histories of the people who try to connect and the history of their homelands. People in the diaspora are dispersed across many different places, and each place, each state, each society has its own dominant regimes of representation, as Stuart Hall calls them. Regimes of representation that seek to fragment and restructure to individualize and normalize cultural identities. These external regimes of representation gradually also become, at least partially, internalized. They begin to shape how individuals and communities in the diaspora represent their past and themselves to themselves and to others. Similarly, the homeland doesn't exist outside of history. It does not remain what it was in the moment of rupture. The African homes of those who were deported, for instance, are no longer the same places they were in the 17th and 18th centuries. They have experienced their own diverse colonial and post-colonial histories. In this sense, the rupture with the past is irreversible. And yet Stuart Hall, along with many others, is adamant that longing, desire and the attempt to reconnect to lost origins have a very important role to play as attempts not to simply restore, but cannot be retrieved, but to recall the past productively through reimagining, retelling, and recreating it, conscious of fragmented continuities and profound discontinuities. This will allow, according to Hall, for ways of asserting shared identities, similarities, common positionings through narratives of the past that are all essential for social and political solidarity across the diaspora, for agency, and for activism. Interestingly, As has been observed in recent decades, not all who consider themselves part of a diaspora share in their relation to the homeland the hope for a future return. While a special sense of Attachment to the lost home may be found among all, this does not always translate into a desire for a permanent going back, permanent return. The Polish and Russian Jews, for instance, who were members of one of the largest Jewish organizations before the Holocaust, the Socialist Jewish Workers Association, or in Yiddish, the Bund, fought for Jewish national autonomy in the diaspora. The anthropologist James Clifford and others have highlighted this differentiation between vertically-oriented diasporas that privilege a return and horizontally-oriented diasporas that envision an empowered future in the diaspora. I would just like to add to this that both orientations and tensions between them may be found within one and the same diaspora community, obviously, diasporas are always diverse within themselves. The second dimension of of the diaspora experience explored by Stuart Hall is the relation to the territorial states, nation-states of Europe and the Americas, within which people in the diaspora live as minorities. This relationship is characterized, in Hall's words, by a dialogue of power and resistance of refusal and recognition, and Hall asks, How can we stage this dialogue so that finally we can place it rather than being forever placed by it? Can we ever recognize its irreversible influence while resisting the imperializing I? End of quote. The second dimension of diaspora is the one I will explore in far more detail in the second part of this lecture when turning to religion as part of identities and representations in the diaspora. The third dimension of the diaspora experience, finally, is about the community itself, about how to build creatively out of the disparate material that diaspora history, languages, cultures, and political struggles offer, how to build out of that a new sense of self and community, new forms of identifications and representations that reflect the imaginative connection to roots with a double O, as well as imposed change and creative transformation, that is, Roots of the Diaspora, with OU. As Hall writes, relating to Gilroy's famous play with the homonyms of Roots and Roots, I quote, identities relate, to the invention of tradition as much as to, as to tradition itself, within which they oblige us to read as the changing same, not roots, but a coming to terms with our roots. In this third dimension, identities are shaped no longer only in relation to a lost past and to the struggles of the present moment, but also in relation to a future where individuals and communities in the diaspora can reassert their ability to shape how they represent themselves and how they are represented. I quote again, though they seem to invoke an origin in a historical past, Actually, identities are about questions of using the resources of history, language, and culture in the process of becoming not who we are or where we came from, so much as what we might become, how we have been represented, and how that bears on how we might now represent ourselves. This quote refers us to various resources for representing identity in the diaspora, to history, language, and culture. And we may wonder, where is religion? Is religion not also a very important resource and a field where people in the diaspora may wish to explore how they have been represented and how that bears on how they represent themselves? Indeed, I would like to argue that religion is one of the most important sites for the dialogue of power and resistance in the diaspora and has been so since the inception of modernity. In the 18th century, in the long transition to modernity, the most visible minority in Europe and the most visible diaspora community, Jews, found themselves in an odd situation. In the German-speaking lands, in France, in Britain, and in other places, a new political concept had gained traction, the separation between state and church. This is what came to be called secularism, the differentiation between the institutions of the state on the one hand and the institutions of the church, the mosque, the synagogue on the other hand. For Jews, this was in many ways a promising development. If the state did not consider itself any longer as a Christian state, but separate from the institutions of Christianity, then Jews might be able to gain equal rights and citizenship. However, Jews could not help to notice right away that the new promise of citizenship in a secular state occurred in a highly problematic context. Suddenly, Jews were asked to give an account of their religion. Was their religion compatible with citizenship? This was very disconcerting because the question itself was framed in terms that were alien to Jewish life. Hebrew and Yiddish did not have a word for religion, nor had Arabic, nor had Greek, before it encountered Christianity, nor had the languages of the first Americans, nor had other languages outside the Christian world before they started to create new equivalents for the word religion in the 18th and 19th centuries, when they began to translate Christian texts into, say, Hebrew or Indian languages or Chinese languages. The Greek word Eusebia, for instance, means good fear, and Thraskeia means alien or useless, rights. It would not make sense to speak of a true fear or true right, which shows how far removed the concept of religion is from these ancient words. Similarly, the Arabic word din, since the 19th century often translated as religion, denotes rather as... The Encyclopedia of Islam suggests a range of meanings, including custom, usage, judgment, direction, and retribution. All of these imply social relations unfolding in the public. Even the Latin term, religio, did not initially mean religion in the Christian sense. It was used, for instance, by Cicero to speak about rituals that connect a people to its ancestors. And the Hebrew language. It knows of Torah, teaching, of Kabbalah, tradition, of Halacha, going. That is a world of discussions, stories, reflections, and decisions around precepts for everyday practice, Halacha, translated into Greek and hence into all other European languages, rather narrowly and disingenuously as the law. So I've just indicated here um, three examples for the words that have been used in the traditions of the peoples in the diaspora that found itself suddenly in the 18th and 19th century confronted with a notion, a term, a language of religion that they didn't recognise because it didn't translate the terms they were familiar with. Now, in the 18th century, Jews were confronted not just with the term religion. The term had also taken on additional meanings in the context of Protestantism and the emergent secular state. Religion was now considered an individual, intimate, spiritual, and private matter that should have no bearing on a citizen's relationship to the state and to their life in public. Thus, when Jews were asked whether religion was compatible with citizenship, this was, in fact, not an open-minded and open-ended question. Among Christian and Enlightenment politicians, public intellectuals and scholars, the assumption was widespread that Jews did not have a religion in the correct sense of the word, in the Protestant and secular sense of the word, an individualized and privatized religion. Jews were asked, for instance, whether they were willing to give up their own jurisdiction, their own courts of justice, and whether they were willing to allow the state to supervise Jewish schools and Jewish teachers. They were asked how, in light of their dietary rules and Shabbat observances, they would be able to join the Prussian army and fight on the Shabbat and they were asked how they could ever be loyal to their new fatherlands, the German-speaking lands, France, Britain, given that they identified themselves as a people in the diaspora, a nation even, in the diaspora, and given that they continued to long for a return. Clearly, the opponents of Jewish emancipation, that is, those who objected to granting civil rights or even full citizenship to Jews, we're not willing to recognise and respect Jewish diaspora identities and how they shaped Jewish understandings and representations of religion. They held it against Jews that they continued to feel attached to their origins through memories, stories, songs, prayers, practices. They held it against them that they remained committed to each other as a people in the diaspora, a nation in the diaspora, keeping alive networks of kinship, trade, and communication. They held it against them that they did not usually intermarry. In short, they objected to Jewish diaspora identities because of their mixture of religion with cultural, national, and ethnic orientations. And those who supported Jewish emancipation? Well, they agreed with their opponents in many ways. They too perceived Jewish diaspora identities as problematic for the same reasons, but in contrast to their opponents, they expected that Jews would be able and willing to transform their identities and their religion. They should be granted equal rights argued Christian Wilhelm Dohm in his famous treatise on the civic improvement or amelioration of Jews from 1781. They should be granted equal rights because this would then motivate Jews to give up their diaspora identities, to reform their religion, and to become the same. I quote, the best middle way would probably be to allow the Jews, without especially encouraging them, to acquire the education necessary for public service, even to employ them in cases where they show special capability, if only to overcome the prejudice, which will no doubt endure for a long time. But impartiality would demand that if a Jew and a Christian applicant show equal capability, the latter, the Christian, deserves preference. This seems to be an obvious right of the majority in the nation, at least, and now Doom envisions the ideal state of equality to be reached in some indefinite future, at least until the Jews by wiser treatment and changed into entirely equal citizens and all differences polished off. So equality in legal terms requires, according to Dome, sameness. Unless Jews give up their different kinds of religion, their different kind of religion, and make their religion the same, individual, private, invisible, they cannot become citizens. The Count Keremontonier was like Dome, a staunch advocate of Jewish emancipation, but he too, in formulations that became rather famous or should I say notorious, made his support for Jewish citizenship conditional on Jews giving up their diaspora identities and practices. So here he speaks in the French National Assembly after the French Revolution when the Assembly was debating who should obtain French citizenship, who should be admitted to French citizenship. And Clermont-Tonnerre is in favor of granting citizenship to Jews, but he says, we must refuse everything to the Jews as a nation, and accord everything to Jews as individuals. We must withdraw recognition from their judges. They should only have our judges. We must refuse legal protection to the maintenance of the so-called laws of the Judaic organization. They should not be allowed to form in the state either a political body or an order. They must be citizens individually. What clearly emerges here are the demands of a secular nation-state that can conceive of equality in legal terms only as appropriate for those who can be integrated into the state as individuals. Equality and inclusion are linked to each other, and through this link the including society represents itself as well as those that it seeks to include. The emerging French state displays its power to include, which also implies that it has the ability to exclude. In fact, the threat of exclusion is very much woven into clermont words, into this invitation to be included. If those who are addressed here do not comply with the terms and conditions of the inclusionary offer, for instance, with its understanding of religion, if, for instance, they do not adapt their religious life to the secular definition of religion as an intimate and private affair, they will have no place within the French state. In a further step, this means that inclusion is not just bound up with the threat to exclude, it is in itself from the start inevitably an exclusionary practice. Boundaries are drawn between those who include and those who need to be included, between those who are already the same, who are in a position of stability, who do not need to change, and those who are represented as different, as divergent, as dependent on the power of those who are entitled to include and who are defined as those who need to adapt, to change, to become the same. Clearly these connotations are still somewhat present when we hear the words integration and inclusion today. This is even the case when inclusion is paired now to balances with diversity, as in diversity and inclusion. Why not instead diversity and diversification, equality and diversification? Is it not the case that in a diverse place we are all on the move? all involved in processes of studying, reflecting, negotiating, and transforming. But let us return to the French state and its offer to include Jews as citizens. How did Jews respond to the promises and problems inherent in the offer? I highlighted here a few questions that they had about what to do about their communal, their group identities, what to do about practice that is so visible, what to do about diaspora networks, what to do about the understanding of religion as um, bound up with cultural, ethnic, and national aspects, what to do about the right to be different and to be visibly different. The offer to be integrated and to become citizens they could not reject. They did comply, but they did so while also marking in myriad ways their resistance, their doubts, and partial subversion. Thus, when Napoleon called for an assembly of Jewish notables and asked them to convey their opinion about the best strategy to revive among individuals of the Jewish persuasion sentiments of civil morality, I quote from the task given by Napoleon to the Jewish notables, his questionnaire included inquiries about intermarriage. Can a Jewish, Napoleon asked, marry a Christian or a Jew, a Christian woman? Or has the law ordered that the Jews should only intermarry among themselves? So... Test questions. Moving to another second example I wanted to offer for how Jews responded to the demands of integration, to the demand of assimilation, of becoming the same. The very visible, very creative response to the predicament that Jews found themselves in when offered equality on the condition that they transformed their religion into a form of Protestantism were the large synagogues they built in cities across Europe in the 19th century. Mostly non-Jewish architects worked with Jewish communities to develop an architectural style that would distinguish synagogues from other public buildings, particular churches. The style that chose, the so-called Oriental or Moorish style, had already been in use occasionally for secular buildings, such as the Brighton Pavilion. Um, Actually, this is the synagogue um, of Berlin, and it's modeled after the Brighton Pavilion. But now, in the new context, these buildings, this architectural style, attained very distinctive meanings. These synagogue buildings As such were a confident manifestation of an ongoing Jewish commitment to community, to practice, and also to sustaining Jewish tradition, to teaching. The Oriental style signaled, in addition, that Jewish communities proudly affirmed their origins, Outside Europe, in the Middle East, in the ancient Middle East, that they proudly affirmed the long diasporic roots. With Aou, in particular the history in medieval Spain called Sferad or Al Andalus, where they lived together with Muslims. The architecture also proudly affirmed their orientation towards Europe, but towards a Europe that they reimagined and sought to represent in new ways, reinscribing the history of medieval Spain into European history and thus transforming Europe. In into something other than the Christian Occident, namely into a place where Muslims and Jews could flourish together and had interacted productively with Christianity, into a place even where this might happen again into a multi-religious, multicultural, and multi-ethnic space. So this is just one example for Jewish response to the challenges of integration and inclusion. To study all the various, different, enormously inventive, creative, cautious and audacious ways in which Jews in various different places have attempted to sustain at least partially their diaspora identities and communities would take up a bit more than the remaining two or three minutes. It is actually a vast part of what scholars of religious studies, sociology, history, literature, um, do when they study Jewish modernities. Two major effects of the expectation that Jews give up their identities as individuals and communities in the diaspora, however, have to be mentioned. Firstly, there was, of course, little agreement among Jews about how to respond to the demand to adapt their religion, to individualize it, to privatize it, and to make it the same. Reform Jews, conservative Jews, modern Orthodox Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, socialist Jews, Hasidic Jews, diaspora nationalists, Zionists, all these are very modern groups whose identities and practices were shaped to a significant degree by their responses to the demand of integration and assimilation. This means that diaspora communities became increasingly fragmented, the tensions and conflicts within the diaspora proliferated, that links among diaspora communities could become tenuous and fragile. And secondly, it did not help in the 19th century, in the age of rising anti-Semitism, that even liberal, tolerant, political, cultural, and legal approaches in the dominant societies insisted on addressing Jews as the others that had to become the same in order to be granted full legal equality. Singling out Jews and putting conditions on granting them inclusion and equal rights marked them as those who needed to assimilate, and from there it was still a step, but not such a big step, to claiming that Jews are ultimately unassimilable, irredeemably and dangerously different, as anti-Semites claim. Why not instead, first of all, granting equal rights? Why not, first of all, redefining the state and society as multi-religious, multicultural, multi-ethnic, and multinational? Why not affirming, first of all, the right of Jews and others to fully participate in such a state, in such a society? Why not, first of all, affirming recognition and respect for both similarities and differences? Or as Tariq Moodood put it, society cannot be reduced to individuals, and so integration must be about bringing new communities, and not just individuals, into relations of equal respect. Why also not, first of all, learning about the history of migrations, diasporas, identifications, and representations among Christians, Jews, Muslims, and many others? Why not First of all, studying the languages in in which religious traditions are expressed and constantly further developed in innovative and creative ways. By not, first of all, making space for teaching and studying religious traditions, more religious traditions and more languages, for instance, in university faculties and departments to learn about how we got to where we are. I would like to end um, by highlighting one aspect that's very central to um, studying diasporas today with a view to how religion is represented within diaspora communities. A note of caution has been sounded that focusing on diaspora communities can easily lead to reinforcing or drawing new boundaries, thus, Brent Hayes Edwards has said that our study of diaspora communities should um, make us skeptical of an overarching concern with the movement of groups considered as discrete, self-contained, bounded, and compel us to focus on the ways in which movement, diaspora movements and com- diaspora communities always intersect, leading to exchange, Tensions, collisions, or dissensions. This is to say that any study of diaspora is also a study of overlapping diasporas. And I would really like to end by highlighting a few instances where overlapping diasporas have been not just studied but actually evoked as an opportunity for various communities to come together. Thus, Daniel Boyarin and Jonathan Boyarin, two of the most prominent Jewish scholars who explore diaspora identities, wrote that a synthesis, I quote, must be found, one that will allow Allow for stubborn hanging on to ethnic, cultural, and we should add religious specificity, but in a context of deeply felt and enacted human solidarity. And examples for such moments were diaspora communities and also transnational groups that do not necessarily form a diaspora come together. Of course, in moments of crisis here, uh, manifestation of solidarity between Christians, Jews, and Muslims in a week after the attack at a mosque in Quebec, and in the same week, a noted rise in anti-Semitism attitudes in Britain, and in the same week, Donald Trump's travel ban on citizens from Muslim countries. So here, um, attempt to bring communities together. Another attempt to explore overlapping diasporas and other communities is this um, charity event where Jews and Muslims together cooked soup, chicken soup, for homeless people. And I would like to end with a quote from, by Tariq Modood, who encourages explicitly to not leave out religion when we talk about attempts to come together. Tariq Modood actually brings us back to our scientists with whom we started. He says, I quote, well, if religion is about truth, which, as we have seen, is not necessarily the case, for many religions, religion is not about truth, it's about traditions and practices. But never mind. If religion is about truth, which may be just one aspect of the meaning and value of religion, no aspect at all, then perhaps it is. it approximates to a scientific community. Scientists, Mudut says, can be highly competitive and determined to prove each other wrong. And yet... Such scientists evince intellectual appreciation and admiration for their rivals and researchers cooperate as well as
0: compete. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.